Pope Francis speaks out on politicians who support abortion and communion, the Vatican-China deal, and more this week, and controversy ensued. The papal posse, Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray, offer analysis. And we'll talk education, school choice, and parental rights with former U.S. Secretary of Education and author of the new book, Hostages No More, Betsy DeVos. The World Over begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get right to it. Pope Francis gave a sprawling 90-minute interview to Reuters this week, covering everything from the overturning of Roe v. Wade to his hopes for the Vatican-China deal to rumors of his own resignation. Naturally, his comments were making headlines all over the world. Joining me now with their always insightful analysis is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing, Robert Royal from Washington, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Thank you both for being here. Now, during the interview, the Pope was asked about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, which uh, overturned Roe, and he repeated his condemnation of abortion this way. I ask, is it licit, is it right to eliminate a human life to resolve a problem? It's a human life. That's science. The moral question is whether it is right to take a human life to solve a problem. Indeed, is it right to hire a hitman to solve a problem. Uh, the Pope was then asked about the simmering debate over whether a Catholic politician who supports abortion should be allowed to receive the sacrament of communion. The Pope said, when the Church loses its pastoral nature, when a bishop loses his pastoral nature, it causes a political problem. That's all I can say, end quote. Father, I'll start with you. What do you make of that response? That response is disturbing and upsetting because it gives the impression that to be a pastoral bishop, uh, we should not deny communion to people like Nancy Pelosi or President Biden. At the same time, the pope is saying that those who uh, are in favor of abortion are like hitmen, like people hiring hitmen. In other words, it's a crime to hire a hitman to murder someone. Well, it's a crime to commit abortion. And if people are promoting abortion, as Pelosi and Biden do, uh, the best thing you can do to them is say, look, what you're doing is putting your soul in peril. It's scandalizing the community. It's a grave offense against Christ's teaching. You should not be receiving communion. In fact, we won't give you communion until you change. But the pope is not supporting yeah. Bishop, Archbishop Cordelione. That's very, very upsetting. Mm -hmm. Bob, he condemns abortion on the one hand, as he has in the past, but then he won't speak out against these proponents of abortion. I mean, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was just at the Vatican last week receiving communion and met, meeting with the Pope. What is going on here? What's this mixed messaging about? Yeah, in, in a way, I think that there's less here than meets the eye, that 
Um, he doesn't really have a clear position on the totality of what's going on here because, um, look, people ask when he says that it creates a, a problem when the church is not being pastoral. Well, a problem. People have said a problem for whom? Obviously, Nancy Pelosi continues to ride high as a speaker of the House. Um, I don't know that it creates a political problem even for Archbishop Cordelione in San Francisco. That the Pope himself, in the first year that he had, after he had been elected, went down to Calabria, and he excommunicated the mafia and said, you know, you, they, they are outside the church. And if you want to talk about creating a problem, you excommunicate the mafia in the south of Italy, where there are, there are connections not only with the church but with politicians. Um, there, there's an inconsistency here, and I think at the deepest level, when he talks about hiring a hitman. Um, I think that's where his heart actually lies. But if you're not going to then go on and make the, the, the argument that people who not only say, I'm personally opposed, which is what we used to say, but are actually actively promoting abortion the way Pelosi and Biden do, if you're, you're not able to condemn that, I think history is going to look back at this moment in much the same way that some people criticized Pius XII for not doing enough during World War II during the Holocaust, that we've had a, a, an abortion Holocaust for the past 50 years in the United States, 63 million babies killed. And in retrospect, if, if bishops have not spoken out against this and done something substantial, I, I think history is going to render a very harsh judgment on those church leaders. Now, you raise an interesting point. The silence of the church here actually has contributed to the advancement of uh, the abortion rights movement. And as you said, the euphemisms are dropping. Now it's full-on abortion rights. Nobody's saying pro-choice or, uh, you know, personally opposed. All those euphemisms are dropped because there's no penalty for saying otherwise. So the movement keeps moving further out, and uh, Catholics keep believing this is acceptable. And apparently it is. It apparently is. During the interview, Pope Francis also said he made some news about the running of the Vatican. Um, and he talked about giving women a say in choosing bishops. Listen. Sono aperto che si dia l'occasione, no? Adesso il governatorato. I am open to giving an opportunity. There is now a woman deputy governor. Two women will be appointed for the first time to the committee to choose bishops in the congregation for bishops. This way, things are opening up a bit. Father Jerry, uh, Francis did not name a woman uh, or say when he would officially appoint uh, a woman to that congregation. What do you make of this announcement? Why is he saying it now? Well, I think he's saying it because he's buying into the critique that somehow the church is unjust to women because we don't let them run the church in some fashion. So he's giving them roles that, uh, you know, formerly belonged to bishops. Now, it's, lay people on the congregation, now the dicastery for bishops, is a big problem. Uh, the bishops on the congregation uh, advise the pope on candidates to promote to bishop, and they do it on the basis of sharing in the governance of the church as advisors to the pope themselves being bishops. In other words, the shepherds are picking other shepherds. Now the sheep are going to be in there and exercising a role that's really not right. You, you may remember that both Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II said we have to avoid clericalizing the laity. And what that precisely mm. means is giving clerical roles to lay people and somehow saying, well, 
this is in response to the fact that we can't ordain you a priest, but we're going to give you all this kind of sacred exercise of sacred power. No, sacred power is exercised mm -hmm. by the shepherds, not by the sheep. This is a big problem. I'm not happy about this development. Well, speaking of power exercised by the shepherd, uh, the pope was asked if he had any plans to resign, given his health problems uh, and and meetings with cardinals to discuss new Vatican uh, the new Vatican Constitution. The pope said this. All of these coincidences made some think that the same liturgy would happen. But it didn't get into my head. It never entered my mind. For the moment, no. For the moment, no, really. But the time will come when I see that I can't do it. I will do it. And the great example of Pope Benedict was such a good thing for the Church. He told the popes in time to stop. He is great, Benedict. Hmm. Uh, raises the question, if Benedict's so great, why did he bulldoze all of his liturgical uh, legislation, the evolution of Vatican II? But we'll get to that in a moment. Bob, your reaction. Uh, Pope Francis seems to leave the door open here to a resignation. Yeah, I've never been convinced. A lot of people w have read the announcement. Um, you know, he's going to he's going to be making a new group of cardinals toward the end of August, mm -hmm. and then there is going to be a consistory in which the the cardinals are going to talk about the state of the church and synodality and all that sort of thing. And in between, he's going to make a visit to L'Aquila, which is the place that Celestine V is buried, who was the previous, the the only previous pope who had resigned prior to Benedict. And right. many people, including me, were wondering, what, you know, why insert this right in the middle of uh, the creation of new cardinals and then the discussion about the church? But like many things that, that Francis does, it, it's puzzling. Um, he seems to be sending a couple of different messages that, yes, maybe at a certain point he'll recognize that he can no longer handle the church. I myself think he's going to probably hold on as long as he possibly can, and it's his prerogative. But we can only see what actually happens because he's, he's the kind of yeah. guy that can su surprise you and turn on a dime. Yeah, Bob, I agree with you. I think the Pope's going to hold on to the very end. I don't think he has any any intention of resigning, nor do the people around him have any intention to let him resign. Father, uh, in a roundabout way, the Pope did indicate that he did not have cancer when asked about it, or rather he said the doctors did not tell him about it, as has been speculated. Did that answer surprise you? Well, the answer did surprise me. I'm glad he doesn't have cancer, but I was surprised he didn't simply come out and say, no, I don't have cancer. Uh, the diagnosis right. was the following. In other words, describe exactly what he had, because he had, I think, 14 inches of his uh, intestine removed, and it was diverticulitis. Uh, but were there any other reasons uh, for that surgery? So, um, no, I'm glad he doesn't have cancer, because that's a terrible thing. Uh, we want the Pope to be in good health. I hope the recovery from his knee injury continues. But, um, yeah, it's, let's just say this, uh, the speculation on resigning or an illness and all the rest, uh, the, the Pope has spoken, but the questions are still being bandied about because when he says the doctors didn't tell me that, well, what exactly did they tell you, Holy Father? That would have been better, I think, for him to lay that out for the audience. Mm -hmm. Remarkably, and this was, I have to say, as I read the, the excerpts of this Reuters interview, of all the things said, this was the one that I had to just take a breath and sort of put the transcript down. 
Uh, Pope Francis says he hopes the provisional agreement with China, that China-Vatican deal on the appointment of Catholic bishops, will be renewed for a second time in October. He acknowledged that the appointment of bishops has been going slowly. Um, we should point out Bishop Paul Lee Shein of Leshan. That bishop is one of the illegitimately ordained Chinese bishops whose excommunication was lifted after the Vatican-China deal was signed. He had this to say about the recent celebration of the birth of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, this happened at a local cathedral where Catholics were invited in. He said, listen to the word of the party, feel the grace of the party, and follow the party, end quote. Bob, how is it possible that Pope Francis can say that this deal is, quote, going well? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, that quotation we just heard could have been come out of the mouth of Mussolini. You know, nothing against the state, everything inside the state, everything for the state. Yeah. Look, we know um, that there has been no, that we, we know nothing that has been positive since this agreement was signed. And our friends over at the Pillar just this week did some interviews over in Rome, and they're saying, on the basis of unnamed sources, but I, I, I think they're very trustworthy as journalists, that inside the Vatican Secretariat of State, the universal opinion is, is this is a disaster. They can't say it publicly because the Pope has insisted on this. He wanted to have, he wanted to, to break up this blockage, as he called it. And what else is he going to say? I mean, the, the price of this has been he's been unable to criticize the Chinese, criticize how they're, teach, they're treating um, not only the Uyghurs, the Muslims in, in China, but even our own Catholic, uh, uh, destroying churches, um, suppressing bishops and priests who resist the, the regime. I, I think all signs are that, indeed, it's a disaster. And unfortunately, the, the uh, Vatican has got to put a smiley face on it at this point. Yeah, well, gentlemen, the, the price of this has been blood. That's been the price of this. I mean, honestly, when you look at what's happening there and the reports I get every day and you all no doubt are seeing. Father Jerry, this agreement has yet to be made public, this Vatican-Chinese uh, provisional agreement. There have been only six bishops confirmed under it since its signing in 2018, and reports indicate they're close to the Patriotic Catholic Association, which is essentially the Chinese government. This is, this is Xi's church. What has the Catholic Church gotten out of this agreement? Uh, weakness uh, and basically uh, an unbelievable trauma for the Chinese Catholics who are faithful to the Holy See, that the Holy See is telling them that they have to cooperate with the Communist Party. Uh, the, the Holy See told the priests that they should join the Patriotic Association and then issued an, a further statement saying, well, if you feel in conscience you can't, then you don't have to, but we, you know, they were encouraging that. Uh, we have Cardinal Zen who has been basically ignored and banished. His knowledge of the situation yes. is correct. He understands it. Mr. Jimmy Lai, who was the publisher of the largest newspaper in Hong Kong, which was shut down by the communists, he's languishing in jail right now for alleged subversion. The very things that the pope counts on in the Western world, which is his ability to criticize political decisions by other people, you know, he recently spoke in another interview at length about the war in Ukraine, said some controversial things. Right. Uh, yet the, the people in Hong Kong are not allowed to do it, and the Pope doesn't have a word about it. You talk about 
no. care for the flock and the sheep. But what about the shepherds who are still in jail in China precisely because they don't want to cooperate with the Communist Party? And the last thing I'll say is right. this. You mentioned, uh, Bob mentioned, this deal is still secret. Something of this magnitude to be kept secret means there's something they don't want to reveal. And that is not mm -hmm. right. The future of the Communist, uh, the future of the Chinese uh, Catholic Church is now in the hands of the Communist Party to a large degree. Why did you do this? What did you give them? We need to know these things. Yeah, no, it's ruinous. And as you alluded to, Cardinal Zen is facing a trial in September that will no doubt be stacked against him. And, and he faces jail time. This saintly, you know, uh, icon of, of the church and its full-throated uh, proclamation of the gospel, again, he should be defended at least by the Vatican, at the very least, uh, if, if the people in Hong Kong and in China can't defend him because of the oppression they're under. Uh, I want to move on. On Friday, the Vatican Publishing House uh, issued a document entitled Theological Ethics of Life, Scripture, Tradition, and Practical Challenges. Now, this volume is the result of a Pontifical Academy for Life seminar. In the document, a Monsignor uh, Gilfredo Marengo, a relativist and supporter of Amoris Laetitia, writes, quote, if practical circumstances make the choice to generate, meaning life, irresponsible, one can resort to contraceptive techniques. A Father Maurizio Cioldi proposes, quote, openness to medically assisted procreation, artificial insemination for married couples while still excluding surrogacy. Father Jerry, what do you make of these comments coming from a document created by the Pontifical Academy for Life, of all places? Uh, it's a very sad day in the life of the Catholic Church when the publishing house of the Vatican is putting out erroneous teaching. This is false teaching. Uh, Pope Paul VI and Humanae Vitae very clearly stated that recourse to artificial contraception is immoral and Catholics are not allowed to use it. Likewise, uh, reproductive means, uh, assisting reproductive means that are immoral should never be used. This is a disgrace, and I'm going to say this with all the force that I can, can muster. The Catholics in the world are besieged by materialism, by relativism, by all of these, you know, pornographic-type images in the media encouraging them to live, you know, in an immoral lifestyle, and then for a priest to come along and publish, and the Vatican to publish it, saying, go ahead and use contraception. There's nothing wrong with it. That's mm -hmm. a disgrace. The priest who did that should be disciplined. But sad to say, the Vatican's the one that's publishing it. You know, the disorder in the life of the church is palpable. I'm not inventing it. You're not inventing it. It's evident. This has to stop, because this is not why the Catholic Church was founded by our divine Savior, to pr promote immorality. Yeah. But Bob, this raises an interesting point. Um, you know, this you referenced Father uh, Paul VI, who has definitively spoken on this in Humanae Vitae. But it seems everything's up for grabs. Archbishop uh, Paglia, who's the head of this Pontifical Academy for Life, he said in a Vatican News interview that the theologians were invited to participate in a journey a journey approaching the 25th anniversary of Evangelium Vitae by St. John Paul II. He went on to say that the book is an opening to dialogue between different opinions and, quote, the care of the intelligence of faith must proceed by cultivating this field where insights and progress are necessary in order to listen to the voice of the Spirit, 
who explains the gospel and Jesus again and again in order to detect with new effectiveness the processes in which the paradigms of human culture are formed. <laughs> uh, I, I, and he goes on, part of the ministry authoritatively entrusted to the Pontifical Academy is to seriously develop these processes of ecclesial dynamism, which does not limit itself to the mere repetition of old formulas and commonplaces. Now, Bob, I don't know what the hell any of that means, I'll be honest with you, uh, but Paglia added that Francis was informed of every step and encouraged the project. Is this just worn out old dogmas and everybody should go home and we should remake everything as we go? Is that what the synod on synodality is going to bring up in the coming months? This reformation of the, the, all the life doctrine and moral teachings of the church? Well, Raymond, let me set your mind at ease. That was just a very bad translation from the Italian. Uh, that you, you just <laughs> I hope so. I, I actually fear it's probably a very accurate uh, translation from the Italian. Yeah, me, Look, me too. All, all that gobbledygook, uh, and anybody with eyes to, to see knows that this is a smokescreen that's been set up. I read that passage myself when, it, when uh, uh, the controversy erupted, and I said to myself, you know, it's been... You know, 50, 60 years since Humani Vitae, and we're still having dialogue with other points of view as if we don't know what those other points of view are and that they aren't diametrically opposed to the whole moral theology that is, was developed not only by Paul VI, but even more forcefully by John Paul II and, and Benedict. It's quite clear, as anybody who, who's been following this will, will know, that the John Paul Institute for Marriage and Family has been denatured. Uh, during this papacy, that actually what's being taught there is, is quite the opposite of what John Paul II put forward. So, in a way, it's not surprising, but this sort of bald-faced political gobbledygook and the, the, the weak excuse that somehow, at this late date, we need to enter into dialogue with these positions that have led to disasters in the secular world, frankly. Um, I, 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 I had to actually laugh out loud when I read those passages. No, no, it's it, it's it's laughable. I have to say, when I was reading it and even trying to read it here, it's it, you don't know. It's a word salad that leads to a, a predetermined end, which is throw off all the moral teaching of the churches. It's been given to us, and as it has evolved, as everybody likes to talk about, since Vatican II, and we'll get to more of that in a moment. At a press conference last week at the Apostolic Palace, the Vatican declared. Giacomo Travisani. He's a massage therapist, the winner of its contest for the logo of the Jubilee year 2025. Pope Francis personally picked Travisani's rainbow-inflected logo as the winner out of the top three chosen submissions. Archbishop Rino Fisichella unveiled the logo to reporters. The announcement sparked a firestorm on social media where the designer was linked to a gay porn website. Uh, Travisani has since wiped his personal Facebook page clean. Father Jerry, what do you think of this logo, uh, and what should the Vatican do here? This is an absolute disgrace. Uh, this is a homosexual flag image being put on uh, four individual figures there, somehow related to the cross, which isn't even an upright cross. It's kind of bent. The whole thing is horrible. It should be put in the garbage. There should be an apology. I mean, they are doing the tactics of the social media world where you put out imagery, create a reality, and say, well, guess what? We've got to conform ourselves to this that the gay pride flag is being flown from Vatican logos. 
absolutely horrible. This needs to be eliminated. Mm. Uh, Bob, do you want to say anything more about this? Because well, we've you know, got lots to yeah, cover. Here. Yeah, I mean, obviously the ideological question here is paramount in our minds, and it leads people in the wrong direction. But I'd also want to say that our church has historically been a friend of beauty. And when you have a logo like this for, for a, a major um, feast in the church, to, th this is not the tradition of Botticelli and of Leonardo da Vinci and of Michelangelo and, and of Caravaggio and many others. This is kid stuff on top of being ideologically mistaken. So we, we have a very rich tradition in, in, in the Catholic Church. The, I think the richest cultural tradition in the world, the longest standing one. And that should be reflected when we reach these moments and sadly is being, being just submerged under this contemporary gay ideology. Uh, I, I want to move on to Sister Simone Campbell, uh, the activist Catholic nun, member of the Sisters of Service, who advocated, you'll remember, years ago for the Affordable Care Act, keeping abortion legal, and led a campaign urging Catholics not to vote for President Donald Trump. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom at the White House today. She had this to say about abortion during the 2020 campaign. I think the shock of our nation is that we claim to be pro, some claim to be pro-life, but they're really only pro-birth. They don't do what's necessary to support women in carrying a baby to term. If we were really serious about being pro-life, we wouldn't look just at birth. From my perspective, I, I don't think it's the, a good policy to outlaw abortion. Bob, your thoughts on uh, Sister Simone receiving this? First of all, that's false. We don't only care about birth. We, the Catholic Church has been providing help to, to women and children for centuries, actually, and, and has been doing it quite vigorously here in the United States. I want to tell you a little personal story about Sister Simone Campbell. When she was kind of leading the nuns on the bus back when she was supporting the Democratic Party, I actually debated with her on a show that Bill Moyers had organized up in New York. And a friend of mine who had grown up under uh, communism in Romania called me up after the show and he said to me, you know, I was listening to her and it reminded me of something and then it hit me. It reminded me of the trained agents of the Communist Party we used to have in Romania. Now, you know, the group that she's yeah. been, she was the head of up until 2020, Network, is the most radical of the radicals. I mean, all of us want to help uh, women and children, and that is a smokescreen that the people who really wanted to preserve the abortion license have been using. It's a way to smear the rest of us in a way that's absolutely not true. And I'd like to say this, because the, the reaction of our bishops and of the Vatican at least commended the Dobbs decision, and that was to the good, but then immediately segued into this same sort of language. Well. Social science, the secular social science has shown us that the best way to protect women and children is to promote families and marriage. And there was no emphasis in any of the official statements I saw from our bishops or from the Vatican. This is a serious lack that we think that the state has got to provide, that we have to, practice, to pass federal and local laws in order to support women and children. There's a place for that. But the, the real way to support uh, women and children is to be committed to families where that can be done far better than any government program. Uh, Father, I want to move on. During his homily at Mass on the feast of St. Peter and Paul uh, last week, Pope Francis had this to say about the church and synodality. 
He said, like Saints Peter and Paul, the church must go out to evangelize and not be bound by the chains and routines and spiritual mediocrity that stifles the gospel message. At times, Christians may be overcome by laziness and prefer to sit and contemplate the few sure things that we possess rather than getting up and looking to new horizons toward the open sea. Nevertheless, the upcoming synod on of bishops on synodality is a call for the church not to be turned in on itself, but capable of pressing forward, leaving behind its own prisons and setting out to meet the world. Father, your reaction? Well, the synod on synodality so far has been a disaster because all that's being produced in places like Germany and other countries is calls for things that are un-Catholic, such as female priests and deacons such as, uh, you know, changing the church's teaching on moral issues, on homosexuality and blessing homosexual unions. Uh, there's just a meeting in Australia that's now at an impasse because the bishops refuse to endorse a proposal for women deacons. Uh, the synod on synodality is inherently taking church teaching as a subject for dismantling. Uh, the boldness of the Catholic church should be to bring forth the truths of Christ as expressed in the gospel and make them lively and new, not this dismantling that we're seeing. It's very disappointing when the Pope uses imagery such as chains to describe what we call the certainties of the faith, the truths that are taught, the sacramental system, the moral code, the life of prayer. Uh, you know, the people I know who are most devout Catholics, they're the freest people in the world. The people who try to destroy Catholic teaching are usually prisoners of their own torments because they're trying to justify their sins. So we have to look really Father, at what is true. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I spoke to a young person the other day who, you know, has rediscovered their faith. And the notion that you would start at a global conference on faith with the supposition that the Catholic Church is somehow a prison. Uh, th this blows my mind, and he was kind of scandalized by this because, as you said, this young guy found freedom in the faith. He found the answers, the life-giving answers he was looking for, and, and is freed from the bondage of sin. That's what's the chain. That's the, the prison. Those are Christ's words, not ours. So it, it, it is infuriating, actually, that uh, the church should be depicted that way. And if indeed the church is a prison, why are anybody here? Why are we even bothering with this? That, that's, that, that, there's my synod on synodality. Why are we even having the conversation? If your opening play, your opening gambit is the church is a prison and holds you down. I, 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 Bob, I'll give you a crack at that. Yeah, you know, I read that, that phrase about the prison in the walls, and with all due respect to the Holy Father, I thought that he was trying to compete with John Lennon's Imagine, as if, you know, we could imagine <laughs> some church that didn't have, it didn't have structure to it at all, that we're going to start from scratch or, or, or something. Look, uh, you know, a, a church without walls is like a house without walls. It's not a church. Uh, if you said to people, and, uh, you know, there were theologians in the 20th century like Karl Rahner who said that, that there are anonymous Christians, you know, all around the world, that they're, they're Christians without knowing it because they accept Christian values without knowing that those values came from Christianity. And, look, there's something to be said for this, but there's also something to be said for drawing a boundary line. If you said to a Lutheran or you said to a Jew, you know, you're actually, the, our, our church is actually without walls, and you're actually part of, of, uh, of us. 
I think they're going to take umbrage at that. That they they have their own identities. They have their, they have their own sense of of where they are and and what what God is asking from them. So, look, he loves to 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 use these striking images. We understand that he wants to inject some new energy into a church that seems to be have fallen into lassitude, but this is not the way to do it. This gives the impression that now everything is up for grabs, and in fact, in some of the um, the countries where the, synod uh, the synodal discussions are going on, as Father rightly said, what we're getting is the most tired secularism now. The, the same old things, that, you know, women priests, homosexuals, and probably abortion too. Now, it, it, it's, it's like a flashback to 1972 when you read this stuff. I mean, it's just uh, wish casting. Uh, the Pope recently issued a letter, and, and Bob, this speaks to your point, and it's an important one about the surety of faith and the notion that everything's up for grabs. Uh, the Pope issued this letter on the first anniversary of his decree, limiting celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, he says, for the sake of unity, we have to embrace the liturgy of Vatican II. He writes, I do not see how it's possible to say that one recognizes the validity of the council, though it amazes me that a Catholic might presume not to do so, and at the same time not accept the liturgical reform born out of Sacrosanctum Concilium. The summary here, Jance, is one must forsake the old right to quote, in the Pope's words, protect our communion. This letter was released on the day Pelosi, incidentally, received communion at a papal mass. Uh, Father, I'll give you the first crack at this. Your thoughts? Well, a couple of things. Uh, number one, the question here is not to reject the liturgical reform per se, meaning that the, when the council said there should be a reform, they, no, no reform at all. The question is, was the reform that was produced after the council a faithful reflection of what the council wanted. And a good argument can be made it went way beyond what the council fathers thought they were getting. Council fathers, for instance, said the Latin language should be preserved. It was totally eliminated from almost every parish mass in the world. Now, secondly, yeah. Pope Benedict saw that the Catholic Church and historically has a variety of liturgical expressions, even within the Roman Rite. There's no contradiction between going to the old mass or the new mass and therefore we're not united in faith because we're not united in ritual. Remember, the Anglican usage was approved by Pope Benedict and earlier by Pope John Paul II in order to facilitate right. communion for Anglicans who wanted to become Catholics. And there was never a thought that somehow this was causing damage to all those Catholics who go to the, yeah. uh, the Novus Ordo Latin Rite that they're being offended. Uh, what we're seeing here is sad to say is a lack of appreciation for the beauty of the old mass that was reflected in Traditionis Custodes, which I think caricatured uh, why people go to that mass. Uh, that mass is beautiful. Mm -hmm. If it weren't beautiful, no one would be interested in it. So I think we have to say, well, for Holy uh, Father, the variety of liturg litur liturgies is a strength, not a weakness. Yeah, and Father, you hit on something that I, I want Bob to explore further. Uh, that, that reform of the reform since the council, John Paul II and into Benedict, they, they helped refine exactly what that Vatican II liturgy was supposed to look like. And it seems to me that's being wiped away uh, in, in one fell swoop as if everything that happened since the council to now is either illegitimate or was not inspired by the spirit. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a papacy that has spoken very strongly about decentralization, about giving authority, actual doctrinal authority to individual bishops, 
allowing differences in um, in all sorts of things because the church is a global church. It, it, it has different expressions in different places. What seems to me is going on here, though, is a recognition that the, um, the, the, the new mass is not really working for everybody. It works for a lot of people. And, it, mm. you know, there, there are things that could be said for and against it. And I'm not an expert in liturgy, so I, I won't go into the details of that. But it's basically mm -hmm. saying to people, and there are a lot of them, who don't find the, the kind of uh, depth and, 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 and lifting up of their hearts in that liturgy that they find elsewhere, that sorry, even though we're in, the, in this synodal church where we're supposed to be walking together, you're not allowed to walk with us. There's not going to be a lot of walking with the traditional mm -hmm. Latin mass people and, and listening to them and hearing the, what their experience is and how it might enrich the, the, uh, the, the church overall. I mean, Benedict's phrase, mutual enrichment, that was what he wanted yep. to come out of, looking back, taking some things that are, are good from the old, you know, in, instilling them in the new, and then the, the new and the old become more deeply Catholic, more, more high, mm -hmm. a higher liturgy rather than a, a disunity. Uh, that said, you know, there are people who, who get into fights over these things, and this sort of decree, I think, is not going to solve anything. It is only likely to make yeah. matters even worse. No, there was brilliance in Benedict's approach, which, which sought to reconcile the, the tradition with the, the, the Vatican II Mass. And that, as you said, it, it, they were mutually enriching one another. And priests who've celebrated it, people I know who had never been to a Latin Mass before, they came away with a sense of awe and wonder that they'd never experienced before. And in the case of the priests, they then imported that into the daily Novus Ordo that they were conducting in their parishes. How that was a bad thing, I, I, I can't fathom. And let me tell you, none of the people I spoke to rejected Vatican II. Father, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, no, these reflections are beautiful because they reflect reality and also the deeper spiritual meaning, message, which is the following. The worship of God is not judged by standards that are changeable over time. The standard for worship has to be, is God exalted, are souls uplifted, is the truth conveyed, is the sacraments, are the sacraments presented in a way that brings people to deeper faith. And we just know for a plain fact that after the council, things were introduced that were in no way intended by the council fathers. I mentioned the Latin, the loss of the Gregorian chant, the loss of any sense of obeying rubrics. You know, many things were just thrown out the window. All in the Vatican II documents, II. by the way. Well, yeah, exactly. And then the, po the, the, the Pope John Paul II, Benedict, said, no, let's restore order here and let's restore a spirit of tolerance. I have to say... What Bob said is absolutely correct. The walking together in the synodal way, I'll believe it when I see the Tridentine mass attending Catholics taken seriously. But sad to say, and I regret this very much, the Pope really doesn't have much tolerance for them. And I think this document is only going to infuriate the situation, not bring a peaceful resolution. Gentlemen, we will leave it there peacefully and serenely. Uh, for commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray, visit thecatholicthing.org. And Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crises Facing the Catholic Church and Society by Father Gerald Murray is available in bookstores everywhere and online. Thank you, gents.
My next guest has long been an advocate for school choice and parental rights when it comes to their children's education. She served as U.S. Secretary of Education under President Donald Trump and is the author of the new book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. Please welcome to the program Betsy DeVos. Secretary DeVos, thank you for being here. I want to get to your important book in a moment. But first, I, I need to get your reaction to a couple of these Supreme Court decisions that really impact schools and education in an important way, starting with that Carson versus Macon decision in Maine. This touched on school choice. The court ruled six to three that Maine's tuition assistance program, one of the oldest school choice programs in the country, could not discriminate against families who wish to send their kids to faith-based school. Betsy, why is this ruling so important and how could it affect school choice going forward? Well, it's a really important ruling in that it continues to take the step toward totally abolishing the Blaine amendments, which, as you well know, Raymond, were very bigoted mm -hmm. against children going to Catholic schools. And what it what it basically says is that you cannot hold religious animus uh, against any educational opportunity. And in the case of, of Maine, where families, parents were making the decision where to send their children, it does not constitute a state interest. In other words, the, the you know, mm -hmm. imaginary wall uh, separation between church and state remains intact because families are making that decision. So again, it's a very important ruling that continues to mm -hmm. undergird states, other states' efforts to uh, supply and, and provide education freedom, school choice opportunities to their families. Betsy, the dissenting justices said it was not the religious character of the schools that was at issue. It was those schools who used the funds to promote religious ideals. Your reaction? Well, the reality is, as the uh, the majority continued to state in that this in previous cases, is you cannot separate your faith from uh, you know other parts of your life, and to suggest that right. Uh, right. separating out um, your expression of faith from portions of your education is a possibility just doesn't work. And uh, and they reaffirmed mm -hmm. that this is actually. Uh, permissible and not only permissible, but we, you know, we should certainly encourage and allow for it. And the reality is that in many, many schools today, there is religion being practiced and taught. It's a secular humanism that our students are being subjected to. Mm. Great point. Uh, another big decision handed down was that Kennedy versus Bremerton, uh, the public display, display of prayer case in which Coach Joseph Kennedy was a guest on our show, was fired for public prayer uh, on the playing field after his football games. What effect do you think Coach Kennedy's decision, or that ruling rather, has on both prayer as well as public displays of religion on school campuses? Well, again, I think it affirms the right to express your faith, uh, to acknowledge that your faith is part of life. And in Coach Kennedy's case, uh, it was a voluntary thing that he did. He didn't compel anyone else to join him. 
He welcomed them mm-hmm. if they wanted to. And, and I think it's it's a great model for any of us who uh, who want to express our faith in ways that uh, we hopefully hope will be attractive to others and not off-putting. But it's it's a reaffirmation mm-hmm. of the right that we find in the First Amendment, the right to practice our faith and our religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the issue of school choice, and you've really been on the forefront of this for so many years, Betsy. Where does school choice stand now, particularly in the inner city where public schools are failing really more than ever? And what more needs to be done here? Is anyone in the current administration even interested in school choice? Well, no, the current administration is doing everything it can to preclude families and parents making those choices for their children with a tax on charter schools, with a tax on private schools at, at every turn. And th- the reality is there is great momentum around actually allowing families the ability to choose where their children go to school, to to attach the resources that are, um, you know, I, I like to use the metaphor of a backpack with kids going to school with what they need for the day in their backpack. Metaphorically, we need to attach the resources that are already being spent on that child in that mm. backpack to take to a school, whether it's a, a Catholic school or another private faith-based school or any other school that they that, that family chooses and, and deems as mm. the right fit for their children. So there's a lot of momentum around this at state levels. Mm. We've seen it, especially because yep. of the last two years families having a front row seat at how their children edu- how their children's education was happening and in many cases all too many cases it wasn't happening with schools in many urban areas that were shut down for almost 2 years two full academic years mm. and kids who could least afford it being locked out of in person learning for that period of time not to mention all of the front row seat at the kinds of curriculum that were that their children were um, being subjected to, many cases antithetical to a family's values. In other cases, mm. uh, realizing that their, their education was not robust or did not have high expectations for their students. And so families who have been able to had the resources, have taken things in their own hands. And we're now seeing policymakers at state levels across the country taking this matter seriously, starting to pass more and more education freedom, school choice programs. Just last week um, in Arizona, the legislature passed the first universal education savings account program in the country, and that's going to allow all 1.1 million students in Arizona choose a different school if their assigned school Mm -hmm. doesn't work for them. Yeah, that's a seismic decision that really got very little attention, but it's so important. Uh, I want to move on to Title IX. Uh, This is the 50-year-old civil rights law that sought to prohibit sex discrimination in education. Now, the Biden administration has proposed an overhaul of Title IX, including the rules you established as education secretary. Now, this touches on how schools should respond to sexual violence on campus. Critics of the administration's rule changes say they destroy due process rights for the accused. Supporters of Biden's rule change says your rules made it easy for the schools to dodge responsibility for sexual violence. What is your response, Secretary DeVos? 
Well, uh, very much absolutely uh, the opposite of what is being contended by the Biden administration. Our rule actually set up a fair, balanced framework for both parties in a situation like this to ensure due process rights were protected, and importantly, to ensure that the uh, the victim or the survivor or the one doing the accusing had control of the situation, could decide how to proceed in a in in a case of a sexual violence or sexual misconduct. It was a it, it is a very uh, very fair, very straightforward and predictable framework that schools have been implementing and uh, and doing it with uh, respect for the notion that every individual has to know what they're being accused of and has to have the right to information and to be able to exchange information and, and you know, ultimately have someone determine, uh, you know, which party has the, the, the right claim. But the Biden administration yeah. is proposing to go to, to do away with every single piece of that and, and, and basically... Mm throw it back into the chaos that the uh, Obama administration had had uh, had invented in their with the dear colleague letter that they sent out in 2011 which threw the whole process into absolute chaos and resulted in kangaroo court processes for hundreds and hundreds of students and under those those old rules before you reform them uh, if someone was charged, the school could find them guilty with a cursory review, uh, no real investigation. And as you alluded to, they don't even have to notify the accused of what they're accused of. They're simply found guilty. Th these rules right. were madness, yet that is what is about to be restored here. So uh, we'll see what happens in the days ahead. But what do you fear will happen to the rights of women in sports should the Biden changes in Title IX be adopted? Well, this is something that they're trying to paper over the top of, but what they have proposed mm -hmm. is to expand the definition of biological sex to include gender identity and any any way you want to identify yourself, essentially saying that trans, uh, trans um, girls that participate on a, a women's team, that this is an okay thing and that it should be permitted. Well, you cannot be a supporter of Title IX, equal opportunities for men and women, and then at the same time say it's okay for biological men to compete on women's teams. The two just don't mm -hmm. coincide at all. And so this is a this is a really um, large threat, and they're trying not to talk about it at you know in great detail. But I urge and encourage everyone who listens to your program to uh, weigh into this uh, discussion. This is the public comment period for these these proposed rules, and we need to push back hard on what they are proposing to do. Um, I, I cover how we went about this whole process in great detail in my book, Hostages No More. Yes. And um, and yeah. and I think in addition, it's it's also a great place to really find out how we can truly fix American K-12 education. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that new book, Hostages No More, the fight for education, freedom and the future of the American child. Uh, what made you write and release this book now, Betsy? And what do you mean by hostages? So I would not have written a book 
had it not been for the last two years and navigating COVID, everyone having to navigate COVID and the pandemic and all of the consequences of that, uh, parents had a front row seat, families had a front row seat at what was happening in their, with their children's education. And many of them are very unhappy. Many of them were shocked. And many of them has st have started to find other alternatives. We need to continue uh -huh. to encourage that. Uh, the the uh, title hostages no more is provocative, admittedly, but it is a direct reference to the quote made by Horace Mann, who's commonly known as the father of our K-12 education system 175 years ago. He said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. And parents have uh. seen firsthand how their children have been held hostage to causes other than the sake of primary education for kids. Yeah, well, in the book, you allude to the tipping point really experienced by so many parents in their awareness of how far the decline of the American educational system uh, has, has gone. And it, it really is a silver lining in an otherwise very dark cloud. It is indeed. Uh, you know, even before the pandemic, uh, the, the achievement levels of kids across the country have continued to decline. Those at the top end of the performance spectrum have plateaued off, and alarmingly, those at the bottom end have, have actually plummeted by many measures. Also, as compared to our international peers, we are not the top 10 in anything. In fact, we're 13th in reading. 18th in math and or 18th in science and 37th in math. And that was all before the pandemic. Wow. These are figures from the before the pandemic. We aren't going to even under fully understand or comprehend the tremendous, tremendously negative impact that all of these shutdowns, these extended shutdowns have had on kids across the country yeah. and vis-a-vis -vis our international peers. It is, it is really devastating. But the flip side is it's a silver lining time for getting policies that will support families and students, not systems and buildings that have for too long mm -hmm. had a stranglehold on our kids. Yeah. In the book, you devote a chapter to what you call the education freedom agenda. And you write, school choice is the power to choose the right school for your child, not just accept the one the government assigns to you. But the term school choice doesn't even capture this moment completely. It makes it sound like we're simply talking about schools, buildings, infrastructure. The movement is really something much bigger than that. What would be your vision for the American educational system if you were able to reconfigure it right now without any government restraints, uh, at the, which you had as secretary of education? Well, I would take all of the funding that is going to education currently, which every year we spend $750 billion a year on K-12 education. I would direct those funds to the families, to the children who are, are supposed to benefit, who are supposed to be educated, supposed to learn. I would mm -hmm. direct those funds to the families to be able to decide and determine where and how their child is going to learn best. And we will quickly see the creativity and the ingenuity of the American people respond and react. We've already started to see it in many ways during COVID yeah. in that 
families were starting to get together with other families and form what I'd call it, you know, 21st century one room schoolhouse. Uh, we've had a lot mm -hmm. of uh, efforts around learning pods, another kind of form of that, learning pods, micro schools. Mm -hmm. But we have to think more broadly about how kids actually learn and how each of them are mm -hmm. very different. And I've uh, used an example of a little school. I live in Michigan. Uh, there's a little school in West Michigan I've not yet visited. But as you can imagine, it's very cold in Michigan through the winter months. Mm -hmm. This school, this particular school, the kids go to school outside all day, all year round, and they're choosing to do that. Oh and the teachers are choosing to be there. But I use it as an example wow. of a an entirely different learning environment that's working for these kids. In fact, they have waiting lists of kids mm. wanting to get into this. And so we have to just Ooh. think much more broadly about what K-12 education can actually be and how kids can actually experience that and by doing so, uh, prepare themselves to be, you know, contributing, uh, effective, you know, civic-minded adults. Yeah, I hope they have thick coats, parkas. That that, that uh, it makes me <laughs> oh, cold yes. thinking about it. Uh, I know, uh, Secretary DeVos. Before I let you go, that the NEA is meeting this week. Uh, they've issued a document saying, uh, arguing for using uh, things, uh, terms like birthing person and, uh, you know, these gender neutral pronouns. Uh, they're becoming real advocates in that area. And uh, w what kind of challenges do we face when trying to impart the agenda you're talking about from groups like the NEA? Well, they, the NEA has been, NEA and the AFT have been the ringleaders in continuing to hold our children hostage, hostage to a very progressive ideology, which has become, has become apparent to many families in the last months or years. And, uh, and what we should be insisting on, first of all, is that uh, parents have the ability to take their children away from a school that, that they are disagreeing with and put them in a school they want them in. And, and secondly, we should be insisting that they should be focused on actually teaching kids subjects that they need to learn, like reading, mm. writing, arithmetic, let kids be kids let them get back to doing what they should as children and, and as learners. And that is actually learning the things they need to know to be constructive, uh, contributing adults. Yeah. Secretary DeVos, thank you so much for being here. Hostages no more. The fight for education, freedom, and the future of the American child by Betsy DeVos is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Thank you, Betsy. Thanks so much, Raymond. Great to be with you. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.